Caution, the contents of this podcast may be historical, but they're still served piping hot. We're brewing up the classics here on the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. Happy Halloween and welcome to the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. My name is Asa. And I'm Allison. Now, we're just about to round off spooky season here at the end of October. But what better way to do so than to look at one of the spookiest instruments of all, the theremin. We know you've heard this otherworldly, almost voice-like electronic sound in countless alien movies, creepy horror movies, and ghost adventure shows. So let's go dig up the history of this electrifying device. The theremin was invented by a Soviet electrical engineer named Leon Theremin. And no, he didn't name it after himself. (laughs) His name for the instrument was actually the Etherphone which is arguably much cooler. Mm -hmm. It literally means an instrument where the tone came from the ether, which is notably different from a wind instrument, (laughs) which we'll get into. So back to our history lesson. In 1920, Theremin himself was 23 years old and working in a Soviet research lab. He was attempting to make a monitoring device that measured the components of the surrounding gases in the air. In an effort to make the readings a bit more comprehensible for the reader, he added a sonic alerting system that made a kind of whistling noise depending on what it was detecting. However, just by chance, as of course most science goes, Theremin discovered that he could change the pitch of this alarm system just simply with his hands being moved around the air. Theremin had taken cello lessons as a child, and he actually had remained interested in music his whole life, so he actually saw this as an opportunity. Rather than making this invention the best gas analyzer that he could, he instead honed the equipment to make the best musical instrument that he could. So let's talk about the theremin itself. The theremin is unique among instruments in that the performer doesn't actually touch the instrument while it's being played. Rather, the left and the right hands are held between two antenna, one horizontal, and one vertical. You can think of this uh, sort of like the X and the Y axes of a graph, Mm -hmm. and your hands are plotting points in this graph. Now, these two antenna make electromagnetic waves that are then disrupted by the capacitance of the human body. Now, capacitance is just the ability to hold an electrical charge. The resulting frequency is then amplified through what at the time was a vacuum tube, a very recent invention. Of course, modern theremins will use transistors or solid-state amplifiers of some way. And then (laughs) the resulting sound is heard. A traditional theremin requires that both hands be used to control separate aspects of the produced tone. Usually the right hand is in charge of the pitch, and then the left hand is in charge of the volume. The pitch is derived from the vertical antenna, and the closer the hand is to that antenna, the higher the pitch. In some of the more user-friendly models that are produced today, this is really the only antenna that is present, so there's less to focus on. 
However, having the volume control from the other horizontal antenna helps with the musicality of the piece. Because not only can you have expression, like crescendos and decrescendos, but by putting your hand close enough to the horizontal antenna, it will actually cut off the sound completely, which thus allows for articulations. So imagine, if you were trying to play a song with an arpeggio in it, or, you know, really any skipped note for that matter, if you just tried to move the pitch with your hand going back and forth, it's going to be really just a long chromatic slide rather than hearing individual notes. But being able to cut off the sound in between the notes allows for brief milliseconds of movement travel with your hand to the new position, so thus you'll hear just the desired individual notes instead of that sliding scale. Because as we know, that sliding scale is spooky, but impractical. <laughs> Doesn't make for the best official melodies. It is Indeed. really just a sound effect at that point. So that now, so now that we understand the instrument a little better, then let's get back to its history. After Theremin perfected this instrument, the Soviet government actually sent him on a tour to small and remote villages with the instrument as a way of promoting the benefits of electricity. And it was a good scheme too, because to people who have never experienced modern electronics, this touchless instrument must have seemed like magic. And so after touring both Soviet-controlled and Western Europe, Theremin was finally allowed to tour to New York City in 1927. And this was a great time for him. He actually got a U.S. patent for the theremin instrument, and he got a deal with RCA for mass production of the instruments. His big dream was that there would be a theremin in every home. Gosh, can you imagine? <laughs> <laughs> then we'd all have haunted houses. <laughs> Indeed. His reasoning behind this was he felt anyone could play the theremin, Quite similar to back when, you know, the small forte pianos, things like that were being produced. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's like everyone can have one of these little instruments in their house. Um, of course, there are cost and space things that get in the way with that. Mm -hmm. The theremin was much more compact, still a little pricey. But anyway, of course, theremin was a bit wrong that people would want to have a theremin in their house. <laughs> <laughs> and he was also a bit wrong that anyone could play it. Right? Because how, without having a tactile component, it's difficult to remember where in each space each note is. So for many people, it's still quite inaccessible. But with practice, you can become quite a virtuoso. Because while in New York, Theremin actually became friends with another Russian immigrant, Clara Rockmore, who was a violinist. And Clara was actually quite taken with the theremin instrument and is one of the few people who really stuck with it to hone and perfect it. And through her virtuosity of the instrument, really was able to put it on the map. Sadly, though, theremin himself was never really able to see his instrument rise to prominence. Because all the time that he was in New York, he was actually acting as a Soviet spy. And in 1938, he was taken back to Russia. Some people think he was kidnapped by the KGB, but others think he was simply summoned to return. But regardless, upon the return, he was thrown into a labor camp with hundreds of other dangerous scientists. That's quote-unquote <laughs> dangerous scientists, as this was the year of one of Stalin's famous purges. Mm -hmm. He only had to stay there for a year, however, 
before he was moved to a Sharashka, still a prison, but one where he could actually work as a scientist. And it was here where the Soviets really took advantage of his radio frequency prowess. He invented the, quote, Great Seal Bug, a radio frequency device that didn't require being hooked up to any electric current, but could have radio frequencies directed towards it and transmit essentially echoes of ambient sounds. Really quite ingenious. Indeed. Like a powerless repeater. It's yeah. very cool. Um, I guess too bad that it was from the Soviets. But <laughs> alas, it was placed on a plaque that was given to Avril Harriman, who was the U.S. ambassador in Moscow at the time. And he proudly hung it in his office for seven years, unfortunately, until a BBC operator in the area accidentally picked up the signal instead of the Soviet powers. And so its presence was finally revealed and it was promptly removed. <laughs> Theremin, unfortunately, didn't leave Russia again until near the end of his life. He was finally able to reunite with Clara in New York before his death in 1993. But hopefully he was able to see his instrument at least be used a few more times, because being a modern instrument, the theremin earned attention from 20th century composers who wanted to push the boundaries. Shostakovich, for example, used it to invoke a chilling snowstorm in a score. It's also featured in the Alien film, The Day the Earth Stood Still, and since then, the sound of the theremin has become stuck in the general consciousness as the sound indicating something creepy is happening. Now, you may also associate the sound with the famous Doctor Who opening theme, but unfortunately, this is not a theremin. It's a similar sound, but a different electronic technique that uses tapes called Musique Concrete, but honestly, probably every <laughs> theremin performer has treated their audience to a cover of this famous melody. You gotta play the hits, even if it's not Indeed. really your hit, <laughs> even if it's just <laughs> your cover. <laughs> um, and actually, there's a lot of other pieces out there that use this Musique Concrete technique instead of a theremin that really sound quite theremin-like. So if you're ever concerned or thinking, ooh, is this spooky noise theremin or something else? I'm sure you could look it up on the internet. <laughs> Indeed. And of course, now it's all so many synthesized types of things and you can find an instrument that will produce a theremin tone, even if it's not a theremin. So. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so if you hear those spooky sounds of whistling and whining this Halloween, just remember it's an electromagnetic field being jostled around artistically. Or an argument <laughs> for the true existence of ghosts. <laughs> you know, both, both electromagnetic fields allegedly... <laughs> well, yeah, because don't ghost hunters like see manipulation or changes in electromagnetic fields to detect ghosts? You know, Asa, I'm not a ghost hunter. Which means a ghost could, <laughs> if they can manipulate an electromagnetic field, a ghost could play the theremin. Maybe all theremins are haunted. So why don't ghost hunters just use theremins instead of those weird little EMF wand <laughs> things? You know what? That's a good question. I think maybe, maybe the gas analysis that Theremin was working on was actually uh -huh. a ghost hunting machine, but he was too ghost embarrassed to say that that's what it was. Gassed analysis. 
And with that spectral pun, we thank you once again for listening to The Coffee House this week and hope you have a very wonderful, spooky season. And if you meet anyone whilst trick-or-treating that you think would love to hear about the theremin, go ahead and share this <laughs> podcast with them. And of course... Every door it, you go to when you say yes. trick-or-treat, add-in, or trick podcast. Trick-or-treat or theremin. Oh, there you yeah. go. Yeah, that has more of the alliteration. Podcast does not. <laughs> and of course, if you can, leave reviews on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, wherever it is that you get your fine podcast recordings. And until next time when the ghosts have gone, I'm Aixa. And I'm Allison. Thank you so much for listening. Rose for Ecclesiastes was written and performed by Yoon Yanamoto and Miket. The Schmaltz Continuum was written and performed by Richard Crom. You can find The Coffee House on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Follow us on Facebook at The Coffee House Classical Podcast and Instagram at Podcast Coffee House. Email us at coffeehouseclassical at gmail.com. <laughs>